Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to be in verses 10 to 14 this morning. Matthew 18, 10 to 14. When uh, Andrea and I were first married, before we had kids, it was uh, several years before we had kids, and, and we would spend some evenings, we would, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of money, and so we would uh, go to Starbucks, we would split one cup of coffee, and, uh, and uh, <laughs> sit there at the table, and we would take uh, a, a card game with us. We loved Skipbo. I don't know if you've ever played that game, but that was kind of our game back in the day. And we would sit down at Starbucks and we would just play skip bow and just talk for hours until they forced us to leave. And, uh, and so we, w- we would enjoy these times. And, and, I, and looking back on, on those times before children, that doesn't disparage children at all. I'm not trying to disparage the having of kids. We love our kids. We love having kids. And I would never want to disparage that. But times were different before children. We would sit down with, uh, with friends and we would talk for like, Six hours sometimes, just about nothing or about some really good things or, or whatever, really whatever we wanted to. And we were never interrupted. Uh, it was, it was kind of nice, you know, to have those times of conversation, these adult conversations that now we find ourselves sometimes longing for some adult conversations. I find myself even now when after church I'll, you know, talk to some of you and, and I'll be having a conversation and my eyes will be fixed on you and then all of a sudden one of my eyes will start to wander on my children who has a lighter and a match and is over there burning the curtains or something. And I'm thinking, what is he doing? And I'm listening to you. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, I'm so sorry. That's that. And I'm over here going, my kid is about to destroy something. Uh, and I need to, I'm going to have to stop him. Somebody needs to stop him. You know, and so uh, it, it's adult conversations change a lot. Your attention is divided because these, these, in my case, three little kids that belong to you have your really undivided attention and, and need your undivided attention. And also, as you're talking, uh, they come up to you and they can ask you questions just in the middle of conversation. I'm just talking and, and all of a sudden I hear my little child there talking to me, asking me a question. It changes a lot once you have children, your ability to have these conversations. In our passage this morning, Jesus is detailing the DNA of the church for the disciples. All the things that we've been talking about the last few weeks are coming to bear on this text as well as Jesus is laying out for his disciples what the real identity, the core foundational principles for his body is really going to, what it's going to look like, what the nature of the church is really going to to be. He's going to be laying that out for them over the next few weeks for us in Matthew chapter 18. With that in mind, let's look at what he says in 18, 10 to 14. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angel always sees the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search for the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Let's pray for our text this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we have read your, your word, that you would make evident to us your meaning that you would make even more evident how this actually applies to our very church body here in our lives as Christians, as disciples, as your little ones, that we may apply it to our lives and be changed having encountered you through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're back in Matthew after a really long trip through two different series, through 20 different psalms that it's taken us uh, I had initially broken away from the series in Ma- or from teaching Matthew in chapter 18. We stopped at verse 9, right at the end of verse 9. And initially, I wanted to break away and do just an eight-week series on the DNA of the church. And that's what we just finished. But right after that last sermon, the plague of all plagues hit on the country, and we took a divergent path, let's just say. So there were some, some weeks where we paused, and there were some weeks where... We went through what our life is going to be like 
over streaming and being at home and all of those kinds of things. And then we went through 20 Psalms over the summer and then eight weeks in the DNA of the church, which was the original plan. And now we're back to Matthew. And we've been away for so long, I think it's worth kind of just doing just a little bit of review just to remind ourselves of the overall structure of the book of Matthew. It's helpful when you think of the overall structure to know first, what is Matthew laying out for us here in this gospel? And it helps us then to think back as we think back on the gospel of Matthew, what, what is, are, are the, the, is the structure of the book as a whole? And so a brief review. Remember, we were introduced all the way back in chapter one to this king that was coming into the world. We saw Matthew told us from verse one that he's of the line of Abraham and he is of the line of David, which told us some very important things about this Jesus that we were about to learn about in the gospel. First of all, he is the fulfillment of two significant promises of the Old Testament, that there is going to be a seed coming from Abraham that is going to do battle with the serpent. That was promised to us all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, the entire book of Genesis and the Old Testament is tracking this seed down to see if they can find him. And here, Matthew says, it's, it's him. It's Jesus. And then we're told in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that this seed is also going to be of the line of David, which means he's going to be a king. So that tells us that it's not only just a seed from the line of Abraham, but it's of the line of David specifically. And we're told from the very outset of the Gospel of Matthew, this Jesus is both of the line of Abraham and of the line of David. But then we're also told just a few chapters later in chapters 4 to 7 that this Jesus is also bringing with him a kingdom that he is proclaiming. In fact, Matthew tells us in chapter 4 verse 17 that Jesus comes proclaiming everywhere he went, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he's not only telling you that he is a king and that he has a kingdom, but that it's here. He is bringing it at this very moment and in order to enter it, you must repent Because it's here amongst you. I'm bringing it. Then we learn in chapters 5 to 7, which we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of the most prolific passages in all of Scripture. Jesus laying out what this kingdom is like and what citizens of the kingdom are really like. He lays out the character of one such citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We see in chapter 5, at the very beginning, we call those the Beatitudes. He lays out what the character of this person looks like. And we find out that it's upside down from the values of the rest of the world. A citizen of the kingdom of heaven is poor in spirit. He mourns over his sin. He's meek. In other words... He's not the strong man that people are looking for to build the foundations of a society. No, this citizen of God's kingdom has upside-down values. They're poor, they're meek, they're mild. And then remember, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we go into chapters 8 to 10, where Jesus shows us the power of this kingdom. This is not merely some kingdom that you're just to think about philosophically, you are to mentally align yourself with. No, no, no. This is a kingdom that has real world power. And we see that in nine miracles that play out across chapters 8 and 9, where Jesus heals the sick, the blind receive their sight, the lame are healed, the dead are raised. But then we get to chapter 11. And from chapters 11 to 13, we find out that there's... joining this kingdom comes at the expense of your very life. And as it turns out, there's just not that many people that really want to be a part of it. In fact, from chapters 11 to 13, we find out that some are set. This is the kingdom of God. And then others are going, I'm not so sure. Is this really what the kingdom of God is going to look like? Even John the Baptist, we find out, is questioning Are you really the Messiah or should we look for someone else? And then we find others, in fact, the vast majority of people who are dead set, absolutely not. This is not the Messiah. This is not what the Messiah will look like. In the section that we're in now, that we're coming close to the end of, that goes from chapter 13 all the way 
to the beginning of chapter 19, we see more of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. If you are going to be a part of this kingdom, it will cost you your very life. And we see this cost of following Jesus continues to grow. It was just a few passages ago that we saw that to be a disciple of Jesus meant that you have to deny your very self. You have to come and die. And we've seen that to value Jesus as the only Son of God, what it really means to believe in Him is not just to profess faith with your mouth, but to actually obey Him as the Son of God. To obey His commands. Matthew 18 largely concerns the way that citizens of God's kingdom and members of Christ's church are then, as His disciples, going to interact with one another. And so all that we've talked about in the church series, on the DNA of the church, is going to be loaded up in our luggage and brought into this chapter as well, in, chapter, in Matthew chapter 18. And in this sermon, in, in the next two sermons, we're going to be dealing with uh, what we are to be as a church, what kind of community we want to be, and what we're commanded to be, and how we're to care for each other. Underlining this entire chapter is the care that disciples of Christ will have for one another in amongst a local congregation. Jesus sets the topic for us right out of the gate in our passage this morning in verse 10. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. So the subject is very clear for us at the very beginning. This is, these are the reasons that you should highly value the little ones in your midst. And he gives us two reasons for valuing them highly. The first reason that we should not despise one of these little ones is that God's children have the privilege of presence. God's children have the privilege of presence. Look at verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. There's a couple of questions that we got to wrestle with in this verse that can be very, very confusing. And so first is, who belongs to this group that Jesus refers to as the little ones? That can be really, really confusing, but it, it, it does need to be answered. Who is this group of people that Jesus calls the little ones? And I know it's been a few months since we've been in Matthew, but if you can look back all the way to the beginning of chapter 18, so just from your Bible, just look up to the very beginning of this chapter, you may remember that this all began, we're in the middle of a section where Jesus is just talking to his disciples, but all of this began with the disciples asking a question. You see that question there at the beginning of, of chapter 18, they asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, this is a pompous and arrogant question, surely. Uh, and Jesus, I think, takes it as such, and he's sort of taking them to the woodshed for asking such a question. But we know from the other Gospels the context of this, this question. They're debating along the way, as they walk along the road, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, why would they be debating such a question? It seems like a ridiculous question. We would never ask such a question, I don't think. But you have to remember back in chapter 17... Peter, James, and John have just gone with Jesus up onto the Mount of Transfiguration and they have seen Jesus' glorified self right before them. So, it seems pretty reasonable that they might be walking along the way, nudging each other, thinking to themselves, I wish I could tell you what I just saw. You have... No idea. Hey, by the way, who do you think might be the most important in the kingdom of heaven? I, I, don't, I don't know. Just, just for argument's sake, who do you think, Andrew, might be the most important in the kingdom of heaven? As they're feeling some sense of entitlement. And so maybe that plays into the conversation that they're having. We're not specifically told, but it seems logical that that might be the case. 
Regardless of all that, Jesus' response to the question is to bring a child to him and put the child in front of him. And he uses a physical child for this illustration for what they must become become like in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He then refers to the people that follow after him that become like these children in verse 5. He refers to them as little ones. He says in 5 and 6, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But then look at how he modifies it in verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. He modifies it in verse 6 with the little ones who believe in me to make clear that the group that that he's talking about, he's, he's not talking about physical children. He's using the child as an illustration He's t- what, for talking about all the people that believe in him, that follow after him. He equates them with children. They have become like children in his kingdom. All the way back in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, says this, Jesus declared, he's praying out loud, and he's talking amongst a bunch of adults. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Again, he's not talking about little kids as opposed to adults. He's talking in a room full of adults or in in a wide open area full of adults. He's using children there again as a physical example of his followers. Anyone who is a follower of Christ who believes in him is compared to a child, not because children are innocent, not because children take things without asking questions, We both know if you have kids, neither one of those is true, right? If you think children are innocent, uh, you may not have kids, I guess. Um, Neither of those things are true, and neither of those things are exalted in Scripture. Children, as Jesus tells us, as Matthew will make clear, children have no status in society. They have no claim to anything. They have no right to anything. They are the picture of of the biblical version of humility. They don't own anything. They can't claim anything as their own. They're certainly not lofted and wise and understanding and looked up to. No, no, no. They're quite the opposite. They have no status in society. And the disciples who are in the midst of debating which one of them is the greatest have just been told by Jesus, either you admit that you have no claim on this kingdom at all, or you're not getting in. I am solely the reason for your status in the kingdom. It's all because of me. It's on me that your citizenship in this kingdom rises or falls. That's what Jesus is getting at. So then there's this topic uh, in our passage, there's this command for Jesus. He says, don't despise his followers. And he says, why? And he says, because their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Well, of course, that makes sense to all of us. There's no questions there. Let's just move on, right? What is he talking about here? Their angels see the face of my father who is in heaven. Is he talking about guardian angels, as some people say? Maybe that's what he's talking about here. I don't think so. I don't think it's ruled out entirely that there would be some sort of angelic representation. It's certainly not like what we see on greeting cards and TV shows. But I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think the word that he uses here, angels, is a lot like we use the word spirits uh, frequently. Um, One clue, I think, to the use that that Jesus uses here is actually found in the book of Acts, where the word angel is used in a very similar way that Jesus uses it here in this verse. Um, You'll remember probably the story that takes place in the book of Acts when Peter is in jail. He's been jailed, and it's really one of the first times that the the Christians have been persecuted as such, especially uh, a high-ranking member 
of the apostles, like Peter is, he, he, he's been jailed and the angel wakes him up in the middle of his sleep and says, come on, let's get out of here. And just the gates open, the guards are asleep and all of those kinds of things. And he, he walks Peter out and Peter goes to a house where he begins, where, where a bunch of Christians are gathered and he begins knocking on the door and calling out to the Christians that are behind a locked door in this house. And there's a, a servant girl inside the house that goes by the name of Rhoda. And she hears Peter on the outside of the gate. And she, she says to herself, well, that's Peter. And she goes and tells the rest of the people. And in Acts 12, 14 to 15, it says this, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. What in the world does that mean? So here is Rhoda on the inside of the house. She hears a voice that she recognizes as Peter's on the outside. And obviously the Christians are behind locked doors because there's already been some Christians arrested. She's probably not permitted to just go unlock the door in case it might be somebody that's coming to arrest. And so she goes to inform the other Christians and the other Christians in the house say, it sounds like his voice, I realize, but that's because it is his angel. I think that most likely means they've killed Peter. And what stands at the door that sounds like Peter, is his spirit, right? That they're, he, she's hearing this on the inside, and it, and it sounds like him. Now, that naturally would be taken to be Peter, but it's not. They've obviously killed him. There's no way he would just be released from jail. They're persecuting us all. If it means guardian angel, then why would that guardian angel sound like Peter? That doesn't make a ton of sense. All right, so back to our passage where Jesus says this. He's most likely using angel in that sense here. Now, that's not a hill I'm willing to die on, okay? There's some room for debate there, but I think that's the most logical explanation for what he's saying here. And that would mean then that the spirits of the disciples, of Jesus' disciples, see the face of his Father in heaven. When they die, they see the face of his Father in heaven. Now, the reason why that is important is because it helps us understand the point that Jesus is making here. The reason that Jesus does not want you to despise them, in other words, to consider them as having little value, is because God the Father values them highly. So much so, that he welcomes them into his presence on a continual basis. They regularly see his face. That phrase is like a, think of a courtroom. Imagine a scenario where you're being taken advantage of by a legal system. Somebody's got something out on you and you don't know why. But you know that whatever they've accused you of, you are completely and totally innocent of. And you try everything that you know to get a hearing in front of a judge. And no matter what you do, the judge will not hear your case. Let's say he's got a friend who's bringing these charges up against you. And the judge, for whatever reason, turns a turns his eye against you, will not open his ears to hear your case. And you know that if you could just present the evidence before him, he would have no choice but to overturn the sentence and you would be found innocent. He would rule in your favor. The notion here that Jesus is bringing up of always seeing the face of God is that their case is heard on a daily basis. That a privilege of being his child is that you always have an audience with God the Father. So here are the disciples walking along the road, debating about who's going to be the greatest, who's going to be the loftiest in their society, in this kingdom that Jesus is building. 
Who is it that's going to have the most power and authority in the kingdom? And he pulls a child over to him, and he sets them all on equal footing right then and there. Now, of course, these are the apostles, 11 of them. Some of them are going to have some authority. Peter's about to be told in the next passage, actually all of the disciples are about to be told in the next passage that they are going to have some authority. They're going to be more or less the foundation that the church is built on is the testimony of the apostles. Peter's going to have a high position of authority amongst his brothers. But lest they think that the kind of authority they have that their proximity to Jesus gives them the kind of authority where they could be, couldn't be bothered by the little ones. Like the world thinks of positions of authority. Lest they think that that's the kind of authority they have is that the little peons can't come near you. They need to think again. They don't understand how God's justice system actually works. There's an old hymn, an old gospel hymn, from the early 1900s called His Eyes on the Sparrow. Remember this hymn? The second verse says, Let not your heart be troubled. His tender word I hear. And resting on His goodness, I lose my doubts and fears. Though by the path He leadeth, but one step I may see, his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. There's not a single solitary Christian who does not have an audience with God the Father. His eye sees them all. As he is listening to one of his children, his eye is wandering toward his other children. He sees everywhere they go. His eye sees them all. But understand, Jesus is talking to the twelve disciples. And by extension, all of his disciples. Which also means the rest of us as well. And while there may be some that have positions of authority. There may be some that might be considered important. There may be some that have upfront roles in the church and some that take a, a back seat, so to speak, or work behind the scenes. In God's kingdom, that does not determine how important they are. In society, we often have that perspective on things, right? the people in Hollywood consider themselves to be pretty important because they make, they make a lot of money, right? So you want to hear their opinion and things like that. And then people in Washington, they are elected officials. Ugly Hollywood, we'll call it. Uh, they, they, uh, positions of authority, and so they, they think, obviously, you want to hear what they think on things. Their upfront role gives them some sense of authority in situations. In some cases, perhaps, they do. But in God's kingdom, that does not determine importance. He watches over them all. Every one of His children have access to Him. This is why you aren't to consider anyone else as lowly or unimportant, Jesus says, because God doesn't. That's the reason. Because God doesn't. His children have the privilege of His presence. Then Jesus gives a second reason that they are not to despise their brothers and sisters. It's because God's children have the privilege of pursuit. God's children have the privilege of pursuit. Look at verse 12 to 14. 
What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search for the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus gives them this parable to illustrate the meaning that he has here, a, a parable that many people are familiar with. He compares all of God's children to a herd of sheep in which one has gone astray. The shepherd who owns these sheep goes, leaves the 99. He's not content with the 99 because after all, he owns 100. He doesn't own 99, he owns 100. And so he's not content to lose one when he owns 100. So he leaves the 99 in a safe and secure place and he goes out to the one that has gone astray so that all the sheep that he owns would be accounted for. So in the previous verse there, in verse 10, all see his face. And in this part of the text, the one that is lost has just as much significance as the 99 that stayed. So much so that he will pursue the one at all costs. He will not lose a single solitary sheep. And when the one sheep is returned to the flock, there is rejoicing that all of his sheep are accounted for. In particular, the one that went astray that has now come back. So Jesus explains it in verse 14. He gives us the simple meaning in verse 14. It's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. It's important to understand the context that this passage occurs in. What does it mean to wander away from the flock? And what does it mean to perish? What is the point that Jesus is making? This passage that we're in comes right on the heels of Jesus talking about temptations that cause his little ones to sin. He says in 18.8, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire into hell. That's what comes right before this passage. And then right after this passage, as what we'll be talking about next week, Jesus talks about Christians sinning against each other, sinning against another Christian. So the first passage is someone wandering off into sin because of temptation that they feel inclined towards. The passage right after this is someone wandering into sin because they've sinned after another person or against another person. And in between these two, Jesus is talking about how we go after someone who is wandering away. So what does it mean to wander away? The wandering sheep here in this context, in this parable, are believers who wander into sin of one kind or another. They're walking into, walking into all kinds of different sins. Sometimes it's the kind of sin that is particularly enticing for them their own desires and proclivities. Sometimes it's sinning against someone else. There's bitter strife and hostility and gossip. Either way, it's wandering off into sin. And Jesus sets the record straight here by placing, look at this, an incredible task on his body, on his disciples. There's an incredible task on the community of disciples, his church. What is the task? Go after them. You understand when someone's wandering into sin, it's not the Father's will to lose a single one. The implication there is church, go after them. When you and I hear the word despise, Jesus says there in verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. It sounds very harsh. It sounds like hatred. It sounds like contempt, because those are synonyms for it, right? I mean, it's hatred, it's contempt. And you may think to yourself, there's no one in this room that I despise. There's no one even watching at home that I can think of that's ever been here that I despise. In fact, I can think of probably zero people on this earth that I despise. Despise? That's such a harsh word. But do you notice the low bar Jesus sets for despising in his church. It's a very low bar. Very, very low bar. Despising 
is something so small as to not know what your Christian neighbor does at night. How he spends his time. That can be despising. You know that they're here this morning in church. But do you know what they're tempted by? Do you know what is enticing them to flee into sin? It could be something so mere as someone sinning against you and you not telling them. That's the bar Jesus sets for despising this church. Now, you might be thinking, good grief, I despise a lot. Truthfully, we all do in the church. We all do. You might be thinking, why would Jesus put such a low bar on despising? Remember back to verses 8 and 9, just in the passage prior to this. Remember what he says. He says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands and two feet and to be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. Jesus' intent here seems to be raising your awareness for what sin really is. And how dangerous it is. If it's true that it is better to lose your foot or your hand or your eye than to go on sinning, then what would it mean for you to watch your neighbor wander off into sin? We live on a busy street and we frequently play catch and things like that in the front yard. And on the street in front of us, cars sometimes go faster than the post limit uh, to, you know, my wife's wagging finger out in front of the yard. Slow down. Now, imagine a ball goes into the street and my child runs up to the curb like they're going to go chase the ball. What do you think I would say? Wait. Stop. Look both ways. Are there any cars coming? Okay, no cars are coming. Now go into the street get the ball, and come back. What would you say about me as a dad? If I'm standing in the front yard and I saw a car coming, the ball goes out in the, fr- in the street, and I say nothing to my child. And I think to myself, exactly, thumbs down. <laughs> I say to myself, well, either the car will stop or he'll learn. What would you think about me as a dad? How would, you, how would I not be held negligent and liable for the child's death? You would think that father despised that child. There's no other way to put it. I despised that child. Jesus is telling us as a church body that wandering off into sin, that's perishing. They're in danger. They're going to die. In other words, God's own pastoral care over his flock is to be reflected in the church community from the leadership all the way down to the membership and everything in between. And the congregation's authority is the authority to pursue a brother or sister that has fallen off into sin in the name of Jesus. That is congregational authority. That's what that means. That you now have the right and the permission and the command to go after that brother or sister. Sometimes, as in the previous passage, this is in the form of comfort, perhaps encouragement, sometimes maybe preaching to them when they're struggling in sin. Often in the church, accountability is, I've fallen into sin, help me pick up the pieces. That's certainly accountability of a a kind. That's certainly what we're here for as a church community. Someone falls into sin, 
We need to be there to ensure repentance is, is taking place. Counseling is taking place. All of the things are necessary to pick up the pieces of their life and restore them in Christ. That's certainly what we're, what we're called to do. But the kind of pursuit that Jesus is, is talking about here is really knowing where you're struggling before you ever get there. It's the freedom of a member to come to another member and say, I'm really struggling here. This is killing me. Every single day, I struggle over this. And perhaps the sin issue is so bad that the church member provides the kind of community that says, come over and sleep on my couch if you need to. Come over and live in my house if you need to in order to avoid this particular kind of sin. This is particularly true of sexual sin and various kinds of addictions like drugs and alcohol. Often that is the level of accountability that is required to intervene on the part of a church family. But the reality is it's so easy to cut these people out of our lives. It's so easy because sometimes they're so needy. And then when you give them help and they take advantage of you and they keep coming back time and time again and they keep taking advantage of you, you think, man, it's easier to just cut them out. But the reality is it's sin that has gripped them and they need you more now than ever. That's the level of care Jesus is talking about here. And to cut them off, to let them wander to death, Jesus says, is to despise them. Are you lost in sin? Are you struggling? So mightily sometimes that you feel like there is no victory to be had. You ever been there? I know what that's like. I've been there before. And outside of God's grace, I'd be there again. Have you been there to the point where you think that you just have to give in to these things, that it's inevitable? Even though you know somewhere in the back of your mind, you know that they're leading you to hell. And you feel like I just can't stop. Sometimes you feel as though you're being dragged there, and sometimes you feel as though you're going willingly. The devil comes to you each and every day, and you feel obliged to follow. You know that feeling? What if I told you there is freedom from the slavery of sin? What if I told you there is forgiveness? To be found forgiveness from God Himself, who welcomes you in as His own child. What if I told you that that forgiveness is not based on your own righteousness? It's based on the righteousness of another who lived a perfect life and took the punishment of hell that you deserve. Would you want that? Then confess your sins to Him, to God. Just lay them out there. He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not just the ones you confess. He says, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Then find in this church community a community of disciples willing to help you battle with sin. Help encourage you to flee from it. Warn you against pursuing it. Correct you when you do follow after it. Feel free after this service to grab me, grab any one of the people in this room, grab one of our staff, Tom, Jeremy's over here in the back. Grab one of them, talk to them about it. We'd be happy to talk to you about what it means to follow Christ and to join with this body in membership. But the rest of you church members, 
Do you understand that this is a church as Jesus describes it? Jesus is describing here the core foundational DNA of the church. So many American Christians are so consumed with their own preferences that when they talk about church, they can't steer clear of them. They only talk about church in regards to their own preferences. Oh, it's good. I love the music. Oh, the preaching is is fantastic. The people are so sweet. Or when they don't like a church, the music is boring. The sermons are long and boring. Usually the two go together. But don't you see that those concerns are so unbelievably superficial that they don't merit one mention in the scriptures anywhere? You don't have to use instruments in worship. You can use all the instruments in worship. There's no method to how long or how short the service has to go. In fact, in the first century, the services as evidence are much longer than ours. Almost all day. Don't get any ideas. There's no mandate on length of anything. Instead, what there is a mandate on is that we are to be a community that makes disciples by keeping our brothers and sisters in the sheep pen. That's our goal, to keep our brothers and sisters in the sheep pen, and we do so in the name of God himself, demonstrating the kind of care that he demonstrates over his own sheep. That's what Jesus is saying here. As his child, you have this level of privilege in the community. The privilege of his presence, the privilege of his pursuit, his eye is always on his children. And his church is to represent him in paying the kind of attention to his children that he does. So what does that mean for you and and me, then, as this church body? Do you know where your brothers and sisters are? At this moment, do you know where they are? And I don't just mean, do you know how their family is? Do you know what college their kids are going to? I don't just mean that. Do you know what sin they struggle with? Do you know what keeps them up at night? Do you know the desires that are on their heart? Do you know how to encourage them with the scriptures? Do you know them as a biblical church community? Do you know where they are? Do you know members of this church that aren't here and that haven't been here in forever? Do you know where they are? Do you know people that would call themselves Christians that aren't members of any church? Do you realize they're walking out into the street and the car is coming? Satan is ready to thresh them like wheat. They're not ready for it. What kind of warning would you give to them if that was the case? Would it be, hey, you know, just a thought. Come on, we'd love to have you. Or is it, you're on your way to hell, you know that? No one's watching after you. You're not hearing the gospel preached. You're not singing the gospel. You're not praying with other members. You have no idea. Nobody knows where you are spiritually. You have no accountability. And you are on your way to hell. And you're going willingly. What would that warning sound like? Membership in the church is giving up anonymity. That's what it is. It's giving up the right to be anonymous, the right to be a wallflower. It's giving up all of that. And it's giving permission to the church. You have the ability to look into my life. You can tell me anything you want. Whatever you see there, you can point it out because I'm quite positive I cannot see all the cars. And church members pursuing you 
and confronting you is how God takes care of you. So you sit across that table from that that member who's asking you some really uncomfortable questions and you're thinking to yourself, these are uncomfortable. I don't don't like that he's asking these questions. I don't like that she's asking these questions. I don't really want to answer them honestly. Do you understand that's Jesus sitting across from you? Do you understand that's Christ telling you you need to watch out. Your hand is causing you to stumble. It's care. It's his care for you. And it's in the person of other members of this congregation. I tell people, when they move away, find a church that preaches the gospel, sings the gospel, Praise regularly and join it quickly. Don't waste any time. Sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't. But this is the reality that Jesus is painting for us. There is a real danger. And this community, the local church community, is to look after one another. As God looks after his own sheep. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, What a privilege it is to be a child in your kingdom. Father, I'm grateful for your grace and your mercy for which I don't deserve. So glad you have freely given it. We are here to celebrate the fact that you have given it to us. We come to praise your name precisely because of that. We have salvation in Christ. We don't even know what all that means. We don't know how serious it is. We often are blinded to our own sin and blinded to its effects on our life. But I pray, Father, that you would create in in this community the kind of church looks after the souls of each other. That's the community I want to be a part of. That's the community I want my kids to grow up in. That's the community that I want to entrust my own marriage to. I pray you would create it here in a way it's never been felt before. In Jesus' name, amen.